Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Platform Podcast. My guest today is James Ross coming in from Melbourne, Australia. And in the course of the conversation, we talk a little bit about the COVID pandemic and the response down there in uh, in Australia. And James wanted me to add a little bit of context so people understand how it's different from uh, the U.S.'s situation right now uh, so that his, his response is maybe a little better understood. Down in Australia, there are only uh, 897 deaths nationwide. They're about 10% of the population of the U.S., so it is a a less populated country. Um, And there's only active restriction going on in uh, two geographic areas, which is Melbourne and Sydney, uh, with the intention of actually getting the total number of cases down to zero. Right now, they're they're under five new cases a day, and they actually want to try and eradicate it from uh, the island because then they'll be able to ensure that they have no active cases in the country and be able to fully reopen their economy. Um, So there is a little bit of... There's a little bit of nuance there um, because that's why they're doing the very restrictive uh, shutdowns right now to try and be able to fully reopen their economy without any risk of any uh, community spread or any active cases in the country. And that context was a little bit missing from the conversation. Uh, So we just want to make sure that you had that. We know this is a hot button issue. It can be very triggering for people, especially those of us who have lost loved ones or have had people who have been affected by the the disease, uh, people who are small business owners and have had their businesses uh, had to shut down due to restrictions restrictions because of COVID. Um, we understand that there's a, a lot of feelings about this this issue, and he just wanted that context added so that uh, his comments were a little bit more clear. So thank you for listening. If you enjoy the conversation, please drop us a review and share it with a friend. Thanks. All right, welcome into the Platform Podcast. I am incredibly excited to bring on my guest today. His name is James Ross. He is coming to us all the way from Australia. Thank you for joining us so early, James. He is a coach, a lifter, and a sports scientist, having both achieved Master of Sport as a lifter as well as coached an athlete to Master of Sport. He is very accomplished, and he is going full on down the rabbit hole, actually working on a PhD uh, in kettlebell sport study. So that is very, very rare in this world. So I'm incredibly excited to have him on. And uh, I will share some links to some of the uh, actual clinical research he has done on Gearvoy Sport in the uh, episode notes. So James, thanks so much for, jan- for joining us. Welcome in. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I've um, really enjoyed your podcast listening to it so far. I thought it's been quite an interesting insight into different um, things going around the world and um, just different people's approaches and things like that. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. It's it's great to see people are actually listening to it and uh, starting to see the listenership grow a little bit. And I always love seeing the report, uh, you know, the analytics on what countries, you know, what countries are, are tuning in and starting to see starting to see people from all over the world tuning in, which is which is, I'm you know just a handful of people, but it's still really cool to see like oh, we've got listeners in seven different countries. That's really cool, <laughs> so, which is great because kettlebell sport is such a is such an international sport. So it's it's great to see that. So thank you very much for listening. I really I really appreciate it. It, so no so worries tell- you, you know you oh i was gonna say no, you know go, no, go ahead. When, when uh you get some people from eastern europe listening in <laughs> that's when that's when you really nailed it i, I think I'll, i think i'll have to work on my russian a little bit for that but <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. 
so tell tell us a little bit about how you discovered kettlebell sport in, in the first place because you're you're full on down the rabbit hole as much as anybody I've ever met at this point but uh how, how did you actually come across kettlebell sport in the first place um so I was I would say I'm pretty lucky um in the sense that uh well I should say I got my first kettlebell in about 2005 um so when I did my personal training course, like a year or two before that, um, there was a guy who was into this, you know, Russian style of training, which was extremely new um, at the time. Um, and I was like, it, it just, um, I was just quite curious about it and sort of looked into it a bit um, and eventually got a kettlebell. And I eventually um, got a job at a, um, a gym called Iron Edge, uh, which a lot of Australian people would know, um, but that was basically, the company was Australian Kettlebells and they had a gym called Iron Edge, which um, later they started selling equipment to um, CrossFit and the army and different things like that. And they just became Iron Edge and that's just their, their branding now. But um, there, um, fortunately there were some really experienced um, trainers there. So there's a couple of guys who um, trained, um, with this, uh, oh, Chris and James, they trained with Afim, uh, who was a ex-Soviet, um, kind of like the Australian version of Pavel, I guess. <laughs> so, I was going to say, this, this story sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, I was really lucky. So, I, I got to train with them. And also, um, a woman who uh, some of your listeners might know, Emily Friedel. She, um, she competed over, uh, well, in America multiple times. And she went over to the ice chamber a whole bunch of times. And I believe she won like a WKC world championships or a two or so, but um, so it's quite fortuitous. So I, you know, I got a job there and I saw Emily doing all this crazy training. I'm like, you're doing more than 10 reps. Like what's going on? So, <laughs> so at the time I was very much into strength and conditioning and I was trying to be a sprinter um, and I was using kettlebells for that purpose. Um, you know, Olympic lifting, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, just kettlebells were a nice addition uh, into the mix there. But I eventually got quite a few injuries um, uh, sprinting because I took it up later on in life and I was sick of 15 year olds running a lot faster than me. So I decided to give myself an extremely advanced program, uh, which my body couldn't tolerate. Um, and I ended up getting um, hamstring tendinopathy and um, tibialis posterior tendinopathy and so basically in, in my foot and hip just lots of overuse injuries because you know I was trying to push it a bit too hard so uh, basically I think the story of a lot of what I've done um, is because I've always done sport I just love playing sport or not even sport just moving around um, but uh, sort of moving from one thing to another thing once I get injured, if I can't do it, basically. So um, I then was like looking at what Emily was doing and, you know, I was like, okay, I'm using, you know, relatively heavy kettlebells for 10 reps. Maybe I think I might be able to lift this 12 or 16 kilo kettlebell for something that would be challenging for me. And of course it was quite challenging, you know, like the classic, I can, you know, press a 16 or a 24 kilo X amount of time. So therefore I should be able to jerk it for that many minutes. You know, it should, 
it's sort of like a one-to-one -one ratio, yeah, the, right? The, 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 the linear work output uh, assumption <laughs> that, we, that we all go in with. Yeah, and it's just a classic thing of like, once you get over like, you know, these sort of unknown zone of like more than 15 reps that you've never done, you know, things just go out the window and, and it's just this different animal. And, and especially if you have, you don't have a good rack position, you're just holding this isometric position, you know, and you're just using your chest and you're just holding these kettlebells into your chest and you're just blowing up basically. Um, so I still feel like that eight years in. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So basically I was like very impressed with what she was doing and, and that piqued my interest. I should say in Australia, um, we're very aware of like sort of hard style and um, different things like that. But um or the RKC, but they never actually came to Australia. So like I was all set to go and do, you, you know, my RKC, blah, blah, blah. But people to do it would actually have to travel to America. Yeah, to, come to, to St. Paul. Yeah, so um, so that that never actually happened. And Steve Cotter came and did, did a workshop um, and uh, down in Australia and uh, Emily attended that. And later on, she actually got um, Valeri uh, to come down to uh, a gym that we later started together. Um, so I, I was just really fortunate to have Emily who was, um, very much, uh, she started like the Australian kettlebell club through the WKC. And so she was like, she sort of took me under her wing. So I'm very grateful for that because straight away I got, um, quite a lot of good coaching. Um, and she would, you know, I think she went to the ice chamber three or four times, maybe more. I, I, I can't quite remember, but, um, you know, so we we're getting some really good information from her. So she was really putting herself out there. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. It's, uh, it's interesting. So the, the hamstring thing makes that, that puts a piece of the puzzle together for me. So for, for those of you that haven't read uh, any of James's research, one of his, one of his papers is hamstring myoelectrical activity during the three different kettlebell swing exercise variations. Um, so was it, was it the hamstring uh, tendinopathy and, and that history of injury that really got you interested in studying uh, how the hamstrings work and how you could better condition them? Or was, is that just happy coincidence? Well, um, at, at ACU or Australian Catholic University, um, we've got a hamstring research group, which is also part of Queensland University. And basically, I'm, I'm the sort of guy, although I've sort of, um, it's not really happening this year, because I'm not really going into uni. But I'll go around picking people's brains and, and things like that and asking them lots of questions to the point where people start to avoid me. So um, <laughs> I've, I've sort of dialed it back in a bit. Um, it does make it a bit awkward when people are like, oh no, he's going to ask me all these questions. Um, but uh, yeah, so we've got this hamstring research group um, and they've sort of developed a Nord board and different things like that. So we sort of collaborated um, with them. And um, well, like I said, I sort of started with a bit of a, well, more of a hard style, I guess, trying to improve sprinting performance. Um, and the paper came out with a sort of a nice, neat message. Um, which was um, like a hip hinge swing. I, I should say, I, I kind of almost prefer the term hip hinge. Um, so we, we define the swings as a squat swing. So as the name implies, more like a quarter squat. Um, and some people think that's like the devil and you should never do a, a squat <laughs> swing. I, I, I personally think it has its place as long as you know why you're doing it. Yeah, everything um, has a place so long as it's sa a safe movement pattern and it accomplishes the goal. That's my, uh, that's my position on any movement, but. Absolutely. So, um, 
yeah, so that's a really nice movement when, when appropriate. Um, and a hip hinge swing uh, and a double knee bend swing, which we called it the double knee bend swing because it's essentially that GS, uh, particularly done in that sort of classic style that um, Valeri Fedorenko does, but we've yep. we performed it with two-handed, uh, which I don't necessarily think is, you know, considered a kettlebell sports swing. Um, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected on that, but we just opted for that. And also I think for readers who probably haven't um, looked at, uh, kettlebell sport that makes a mo lot more sense to them. Well, and it's a it's a it's a variable that you have to isolate too, right? Because you can't have an you can't introduce another confounding variable within a, a scientific research uh, paper where it's like, well, for these two variations of the swing, we did a two hand variant, and then on this one, it's a one handed variant. Well, then how do you know the validity of the conclusions that you're making wasn't influenced by the load and the unilateral loading pattern of a one handed swing versus uh, a two handed swing, right? Like, there absolutely you can't introduce that confound variable or else you know the research uh, I'm assuming the, the the reviewing body would probably be like eh, I'm not sure we're going to be able to accept this absolutely I mean that sounds like another great paper that we could do as a follow-up so because we do the dominant leg so if you know it would very much potentially change um, which hand um, the kettlebell is in I imagine um, especially if you look at more of these modern style swings where they go out to the side a bit more versus mm -hmm. the ones that go a bit more uh, directly sort of in line with your midline. But the really neat story or the take home message was, um, you know, it's, it's not a global uh, thing, but I think for most of us would agree that the double knee bend or let's say kettlebell sports swing perform the task more efficiently. In contrast, the hip hinge swing um, had the, highest myoelectrical activity um, and I guess you could say was the least efficient but maybe if you're looking you know again it comes back to why you're doing it maybe that's what you're after you're looking to try and get the highest um, activity through there and I, I should say though like um, if you perform both exercises with the intention to move it as quickly as possible say uh, with the, the kettlebell sports swing, as it passes your knees, you, it's, you're gonna sort of really pop your legs a bit and it's kind of closer to a, a jump. So you've basically mm -hmm. repositioned the kettlebell to be more efficient. And I actually collected force plate data at the same time, except um, sadly, somehow um, someone kicked one of the leads out. Um, so we could never use that uh, as well, which would have been a nice story to, um, so, basically just looking at the timing and, and how the, the movements are a little bit different and it teases it out a bit more, but basically you're repositioning the kettlebell to apply force a bit more vertically um, uh, and just making it more efficient basically with, with the kettlebell um, sports style compared to the, um, I was going to say hard style or hip hinge swing. Now, so I think, the, we can, I think we can use those interchangeably, you know, as part of the vernacular at this point, right? Like, I think that's what most people, at least in America, understand. When you say hip hinge swing, uh, I actually, that's probably more confusing to a lot of people than if you just say a hard style swing, because that's what people are right. familiar with. But I, I guess over here for, for myself, um, I think um, for, for me, like, because hard style sort of, I'm not sure if I'd say it's a brand, but it sort of seems to have changed. But essentially, yeah, it is a hip swing, but there's just variations on that. And that's sometimes mm -hmm. why I'd say hip hinge. Um, but yeah, let's use them interchangeably for today. 
I mean, yeah, I, I prefer I prefer the accuracy of, of the of the clinical terminology that you're using because that's just my nature. Um, I think we're pretty similar in, the, in that regard. But uh, you know, I think for for the average listener, I think you could probably just say the the, the hard style swing. So it's I mean, it's funny that like the research validated the intentionality behind the two different styles and uh, and basically said, okay, these are on brand. Like everybody, everybody's on brand here. Hard style is less efficient. And, in, you know, and if the, the point is to be less, less efficient because you're trying to do it, at, you know, as hard as possible, you know, air quotes, right? You're trying to make every rep as maximal force output as possible then that makes sense. And, you know, the inverse is true for, for the sports swing because you're trying to be as efficient on every rep as possible so that you can go longer, right? That, that is on brand and the research confirmed that that is in fact valid methodology, essentially, right? That's kind Absolutely. of the take home message. Yeah, yeah. And where it would also be quite interesting is if we um, had a variety of different loads to see if you could actually swing more with the kettlebell sports swing versus the hip hinge uh, swing. Um, or hard style swing. Um, I suspect though, uh, as the weight gets, you know, quite heavy, you'll probably deviate more to that squat style swing um, for a lot of people doing the hip hinge uh, swing, just because of that, you have to counterbalance that weight when it's pulling you um, um, forward, basically. Um, but, you know, that would be another interesting study that maybe uh, someone won't want to give me money to do one day, but um, I've got force plates in the gym now. So that's very exciting. So I might try and do that myself, um, but we'll see how we go if we ever get out of this current situation. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, that, that would be very interesting. I think there, there, there are so many, there are so many uh, areas that really could be studied, especially when it comes to, to kettle, well, kettlebells in general, there's not a ton of research out there, but kettlebell sports specifically, there's not very much research out there at all, at least outside of, you know, Russian papers that, that I've seen. Uh, there's just not, there's just not much out there. So it's really cool to see that, that uh, at least someone is, is pursuing it. And um, you're, you're currently pursuing your doctorate right now. And that's, that's focused on the kettlebell swing, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So my master's was on the snatch. Um, and uh, with the, that hamstring paper, we, uh, that was one of my supervisors honors students. And um, I sort of pushed that idea through, through there and, and just helped out with that. And we got the hamstring guys to help out. And so that was a really nice thing. I should just add to that one really nice, um, potentially practical uh, thing with that is that the kettlebell swing's been shown to really activate those medial hamstrings or the semi-tendinosis, semi-membranosis, which are potentially useful for um, unloading your ACL. So, um, oh. so those hamstrings help support the ACL and they also have a rotational, um, or they exert a rotational force on the knee and that can help sort of uh, resist against that valgus collapse or the knee dropping in, which will really load your ACL. So. There's kind of might give some SNC coaches or some other, you know, people a bit of a rationale behind using this, the swing. So if anybody out there is listening that has an end to the NFL, let the NFL strength and conditioning coaches uh -huh. know that James can help you prevent ACL tears because <laughs> that, that's the, that's the take home message I got. The, uh -huh. I don't know if you're familiar with how, how many ACL tears have happened in the NFL this year, but it is a lot. It's above, it's above the, the mean right now already. And we're only a, a few weeks into the season, which is unsurprising given the, you know, the off season conditions, but uh, there's, there's a lot of high profile players in the NFL that are on, on season long IR because they've torn their ACLs already this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to say it was that simplistic, but um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm trying to get you hired, man. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so anyway, there's obviously you would do lots of other exercises as, as well associated with that, but um, that, that's potentially a nice um, little one there that you could sort of uh, add in. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, the PhD is sort of on the swing and it's a bit more of an S&C orientation um, and just uh, mainly, like I was saying to you uh, before, you know, kettlebell sports also, and I'm really interested in that. And I, I sort of, with my masters, I was sort of trying to reverse engineer kind of, or at least trying to getting a better understanding and share that understanding with the scientific community. Cause a lot of the coaches and stuff um, kind of had an, an idea of that stuff. And um, I was almost just documenting it in a way. I mean, so at least I had a strong idea what, of what I thought would happen. Um, and yeah, so we're just putting that on paper. So for other scientists to be like, oh, okay. Oh yeah, I can see kind of what's happening or at least for coaches validating um, and giving myself, cause I'm really struggle with snatch, a, a better understanding of that. Whereas the PhD is probably a bit more SNC orientated cause it's quite hard to, you know, um, if you ever want to get funding, it's like, you know, kettlebell swings and diabetes or um, my friend Neil in Queensland is doing like kettlebell training and geriatric stuff and ah, he's yeah. got some exciting results. Um, my father is 63 years old and had a had a had a bypass surgery this past January. I just showed him some kettlebell movements to help him rehab his his sternum and some shoulder mobility in his chest. You know, after surgery, obviously he's got a lot of a lot of tightness in that area, and he was he's starting to take his he's starting to take his little kettlebell to the to the driving range at the golf course to to help him warm up. So I think there's definitely a, an interesting area of application there. I'd be interested to see that research when it when it gets completed. I think that's a great population for it. That's fantastic. So um, if you're interested, he's a kettlebell physio. But um, also, that's pretty impressive that your dad would listen to you when it comes to training. <laughs> my my father would certainly not listen to me. Well, I had to get back up from my brother, actually. <laughs> and my, my mom is actually a physical therapist uh, assistant as well. So it's it's funny. He's got, you know, he's got a, a wealth of knowledge available to him. But, uh, you know, uh, like most like most of our, our our parents, I think he's a little reticent to uh, to ask for help and uh, is a little a little stubborn. But there are some areas he will concede that I that I know more than him about. And fortunately, uh, at this point, he has conceded that I do know a little bit more about physical training than, than he he does so he oh, was fantastic he was he was open to it and it was good and I it was it was funny because he tried to tell me that he couldn't he couldn't strength train because uh you know he couldn't get into the gym in their in their town that they live in and I was like <laughs> bullshit I know you've got kettlebells out in the garage let's go <laughs> I mean that's one thing that's absolutely fantastic about kettlebells um you know in in Australia and um, around the world you know any contact sport or um, so many team sports just can't go ahead but kettlebell sport uh, it's not necessarily easy, but we can still compete. Um, we just did a lot of things online in Australia and, um, you know, it's not the same, but it's still something. So we've got to be sort of grateful for that, but it's also, you can just get so much. They're so yeah, versatile. We've, we've been, we've been so prepared for this for a while. I mean, you're completely alone on the platform, right? We, we have a saying that uh, I think it was Aaron Vivial from Texas Kettlebell Academy here in America always always said that we're all in this together alone <laughs> you know because the whole the whole point is you know when you're on the platform it's just you and the bells like even if there's somebody even if there's somebody four feet away from you at a certain point you get to minute seven there is nothing else it's just you and the bells <laughs> like that's that's always been my experience at least so that's well that's actually one of the things I love about kettlebell sport is uh, at a certain point everything else just kind of falls away absolutely yeah 
so I wanted I wanted to ask you about uh, periodization and and kind of training load because I just spent the last uh, God I I don't even I didn't even track the hours I don't think I even want to know um, I designed the 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 macro program for my team for the next twelve months and then broke that down into mesocycle four mesocycles each of which are three months long and and gave everybody a, a twelve month training plan and they now have the next three months of their of their training cycle uh, in their spreadsheets um, it took me. It took me a good bit of <laughs> took me a good bit of time, as you can imagine. Um, but I would I would love to hear your approach to how you do periodization and, and program design. Well, firstly, that's fantastic. I'm sure there's um, not many many people planning into the future. But um, I, I think well, there's a there's a lot of things, and I'll sort of take a step back to try and give some context because I tend to waffle. So I'll sort of try to give myself a framework. Um, so when it comes to improving performance, there's kind of well, typically you want to go after your weakest links and um, there's sort of four areas um, which you can develop to improve performance, which is sort of physical, tactical, technical, and psychological. And so when we periodize our program and our training program can affect all of those in, in different ways. Um, but if we cue into more of that physical side of things um, and for physical stuff, we, um, you know, we could say break down things into flexibility, um, strength or power and endurance. I mean, these are just very general terms. Um, and then we can cue into um, those things and it's probably easier to look at um, endurance and strength um, in terms of programming. Um, of course, you can have flexibility throughout your program, but with periodization where that comes in or long-term planning, um, you can set yourself up for success. And by planning different blocks, you try to potentiate or improve the outcome of the next cycle of training. So what I mean by that is if you're 12 weeks out, maybe the first four to six weeks, you might do predominantly a bit more of an endurance focus, or I should say for the individual, it's really about focusing on their weaknesses. And that's the best mm. way to improve um, yeah, improve their performance, but you might focus a bit more on endurance um, with like a block periodization and then go to uh, a bit more, um, more specific stuff. And when I talk about um, tactical stuff, that's to do with your pacing. Um, mm, or okay. trying that, to simulate comp competition. That was what I was. That was what I was going to ask you because uh, you know when you say physical, tactical, technical, and psychological, three of those are intuitive to me. Tactical, I was like, hmm, what's the difference between tactical and technical? So now I understand. I understand your framework better now. So pacing. So talk a little bit about that. About that component. How do you how do you work on the tactical components? What are what are those pieces? And yeah, so basically. Um, I think there's a, a few different things going on. So for myself, um, I, um, uh, well, I'll take a step back also um, for say psychological stuff. I like to do, if you're going into an unknown stuff, I like to do lots of 10 minute sets if you can tolerate that psychologically mm -hmm. um, because then you get experience and you're comfortable with that experience basically. Um, and so you know where you're at. So recently um, I was able to get a, a PB in long cycle. And basically what I would do is every week I would do like a 10 minute set or worked up to doing a 10 minute set and last, you know, every, every week you were I, doing one. Yeah. So, uh, well, 
yeah, so basically, um, I've sort of condensed my training a lot. I've gone from um, last year before, um, last year, uh, yeah, I think last year before the World Championships in Ireland, I was training uh, maybe six sessions a week that were two to three hours long. Mm -hmm. And then uh, because of uni, I had to cut it down. So I was like sort of four sessions of 90 minutes. And then um, this year has been, I've condensed it a bit more. And um, basically if you're training a bit uh, shorter, you'll up the intensity. Now I should say f I've been doing this for quite a long time. So I'm quite comfortable doing 10 minute sets with 32s. Um, if, if you're new to it, that's like the worst thing to do. And I <laughs> kind of got to about MS level, just doing interval training. Cause I didn't like doing longer sets and I'd have to really build myself up psychologically. Well, that, that would be, if somebody yeah. tried to do the 32s for 10 minutes without building to it, that would kind of be like your experience with your sprinting work, right? Where you were like, I'm tired of getting beat by 16 year olds. So I'm going to go after this, this soup, this super aggressive training protocol. And it's a recipe to get hurt. If you don't, if you don't potentiate yeah. appropriately. Yeah, exactly. And I think you also have to be flexible. Now you can't come away from it. So kettlebell sport training is all about consistency. So you just have to be consistent. So if your training's too hard and you're not consistent, that's the worst. Mm. So basically it has to be something that you can do and it is achievable. Of course we have our bad, bad days and our good days. So for myself, if I, you know, I might have an eight or a 10 minute set planned um, or if it's, sub uh, maximal load i might do uh t 11 or 12 minutes uh in the past james would be like that is the worst program for me but when i've got like half an hour to train you know um that's that's a pretty good pretty good uh, approach but basically what i would do is you know no stress if it's not if i'm not feeling it today then i just switch to interval training um so i might do say a six minute set or even like a four minute set. And then I would just add a few minutes and just go to like a 30 seconds on minute on, uh, sorry, 30 seconds off minute off something like that, or like a one-to-one -one or a two-to-one, a work to rest ratio and just yep. finish that off. So that would also give me a bit more of an incentive because um, maybe if I added a few more intervals on, I'm like, Oh, if I can get to eight minutes. So that's just sort of some of the mind games um, I use for myself. Um, it's not necessarily appropriate for everyone. Um, so, but basically, um, uh, coming back again, so with the pacing, so once, uh, so, um, I, I like to use like repetitions in reserve, um, and I use it in a different way. So, uh, you've probably heard of repetitions in reserve, but I kind of use it in the opposite for GS. So if yeah, you're doing so, strength training. Yeah. It's a, it's a, for people that aren't familiar, I am familiar with it, but it's from, it largely comes from the bodybuilding world, right? Like where it's, uh, well, I, I, that's where I'm most familiar with it, where you're going to leave a couple of reps in the tank essentially, and you're never going to fully tax out the muscle, uh, to its, to its full capacity. The, the theory behind it being that you'll be able to recover from that session, uh, better and be able to come back and train that same muscle group uh, sooner than if you than if you trained every muscle group to its complete uh, taxation point every time, right? Is that is that the is that your understanding yeah, of it yeah. as well? Yeah. So it's just a way of measuring um, load or um, yeah, it's almost like a way of auto regulating as well. Like um, so that might change day to day. And some people also use an RPE scale, which was originally designed. 
um, for endurance training with in rate mind, of perceived so exertion. Like, we're throwing we're throwing around a lot of a lot of acronyms from the strength uh, and conditioning. <laughs> no, it's fine. I just want to make sorry. sure that for people that aren't initiated to the to the acronyms that they know what that means. RPE means rate of perceived exertion. Exactly. So how how and, tough do you subjectively evaluate something to be? Ex exactly, and um, so that's also worth recording. Um, so you can have what's called internal and external load. Um, well, I'm going off on a tangent here. Um, oh, that's great, so man. This like, is awesome. I love, I love this so much. I can't even tell you. <laughs> so say for your internal load, you would have like your heart rate, right? Whereas your external load would be your RPM or your um, volume. Um, and a really cool way to look at your training load, um, especially if you monitor training load, is so some people will get just weekly um, volume in just kilograms. I lifted X kilos this week. Um, you can actually times your RPE by your training um, load. And, and that sometimes is gives you, I personally think, a slightly better um, view of this training stress. So f mm, why that is... That's is, an interesting, that's an interesting theory. I like that. So if I was to do like 60 reps long cycle with 32s versus 120 with 16s, like you know, 60 reps with 32s is significantly harder than 120 with uh, 16s or whatever you want to look at, but it's the same. It's analogous uh, volume, but the, but the output, the, the difficulty of the output is significantly different. It's, it's a way to capture what we're talking, like, you know, the non-linear the non non difficulty increase as you go up in load, right? That, that's, the, that's, a, that's a good exactly. way to, to quantify that. And then it also starts to capture some of those uh, subjective lifestyle factors, right? Because on even on a given day, especially right now with COVID and all the craziness that's going on, uh, one day, you know, doing doing 24, you know, double 24 is long cycle for me and, and saying, you know, I'm going to do fi a five minute set at eight RPMs. That might be fairly easy, right? I might rate that as a four on perceived exertion, but say I'm, I have a stressful day at work and I've got to take care of my kids. And then my kid got sent home because he's sick, uh, you know, et cetera. I do that exact same workout the next week and it might be a six or a seven just because of lifestyle factors. And you start capturing some of that if you look at load plus or load and um, RPE in some okay. mathematical fashion. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's just a nice thing. And I should say with RPE, if you want to look it up, you might find um, so like a 10 point scale or you might find something that's like uh, 200 or something like that. So just with the, the bigger one, originally you would sort of, or sorry, a 21 or something like that. You would basically add a zero and that would represent your heart rate. And again, it's designed around more aerobic style stuff. And then it was sort of... Um, simplified just as an easier way to communicate it and there's a one to ten scale um, and like five is hard and in aerobic training um, for the the normal modes of training such as like a, an aerobic mode like a running or a cycling typically around a five would be your aerobic threshold which is just a fancy way or i should clarify because there's different thresholds and different names um, the aerobic threshold would be the first point if i'm taking your blood lactate um, there's sort of a noticeable increase and then um, a seven out of ten is about your anaerobic threshold which is where that um, there's a greater spike and um, you would have a greater onset of sort of blood lactate so there's a more rapid increase there um, and another threshold which i think is really important for gs is uh, what's called maximum 
um, lactate steady state, which is basically mm -hmm. the most lactate that you can tolerate and continue to work in a steady state. Yep. And that's that one thing. That in lactate endurance. threshold, oof. <laughs> So yeah, that, that's, I mean, yeah, we all know that feeling and uh, that's also what separates endurance performance uh, elite guys. So basically they all have great VO2 maxes, but the guy who can tolerate more anaerobic um, uh, work uh, and continue to work in a steady state uh, will typically um, do better. That's, that's um, like Lance Armstrong in cycling for, for, you know, to take it outside of G GS sport, right? When he was crushing everyone, it was always in the hills. It was always in the Alps that he beat everyone because he could just suffer longer than everyone else. He had the, of course he had the incredible VO2 max, but all of the elite, you know, cyclists had that elite VO2 max, but his lactate threshold is, uh, from what I've heard, just, you know, off the charts. I mean, he's the right end of the bell curve as far as lactate threshold. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, if we bring it back to sort of, um, so you've, you've got your repetitions in reserve and your RPE for strength training. Um, and so some people would say one rep in reserve or nine RPE, two reps in reserve or eight RPE. So that's kind of um, what, so I've sort of taken that and um, I find this personally really useful as a coach. Um, all it, so what I might give someone as a training program is I might go six minute set um, instead of my constant 10 minute sets, but like six minute set and then just a maximum sprint at the end. So I know if, if they're like two reps under that, um, what, what I'm asking for that they're, they're two reps under that, the RPM RPM that I've prescribed throughout the, the session, I know that that's a very difficult set for them. Whereas if they're like five or it depends on the exercise, four reps over, maybe in a jerk, they might be like eight or 10 reps because they can sort of dig out a bit of a sprint at the end. Um, then I go, okay, assuming all things are even next week, you will tolerate one or two minutes extra. So that's a nice way to use uh, repetitions in reserve in the opposite way, because you, um, if that makes sense. So you're, you're like six reps above your, um, the set RPM. Yeah, so by, by keeping reps in the more. by keeping reps in reserve, you can then go longer, essentially, right? If we're going at sub-maximal pace and keeping some reps in reserve each minute, we can then bank we can bank that and then cash it in at the end of the set. Is that is that the right way of understanding? Yeah, it? exactly. So so for myself, going back to this um, tactical um, approach, and there's other ways to do this, but this is just something I like to experiment with things on myself before I subject any of my athletes <laughs> to it. Um, <laughs> So I probably wouldn't give people as many 10 minute sets as I am happy to do. But, um, so, uh, I would swear at you if you gave me as many 10 minutes, <laughs> if you gave me one a week, I would be swearing at you a lot. I'd still do them, but I'd be swearing at you. So, yeah, I was probably doing, uh, you know, three a week, one for jerk, one for long cycle and one for snatch, or at least attempting to, um, but, uh, what I would do say with, uh, long cycle is if I did six RPM and then, you know, a f 10 or 12 reps, then I would go, um, so nine minutes, then plus 10 or 12, then I would go eight minutes plus a sprint, then work down. And then to I sort of find a point um, where I can reach the absolute maximum. And I was doing this with jerk and I sort of found um, with thirties and I sort of found when I'd start sprinting, uh, well, not sprinting, just increasing my RPM at a certain point, I'd sort of get diminishing returns or actually negative returns. So if, 
like I personally quite like, and it's also how I've trained myself to cruise and then sprint at the end. Whereas some people like to just find that point, then just try to maintain it the whole way through. I personally find it. You're, you're preaching to the converted. That's what I coach my athletes all the time. Find your cruising speed. And then at the end, we, we, we go, we go the last minute, last minute, 90 seconds, right? We, we sprint. Yeah, exactly. And, and so basically what, yeah. And what I've done is basically just go, you know, 30 second sprint, 90 uh, minute sprint, 90, blah, blah. So if you repeat that regularly, you also um, get an idea of sort of how reliable you are with your training, but also, um, or how, you know, if there's a huge amount of variance and obviously we do have day-to-day variance, but um, yeah, you sort of get an idea of, like maybe I'm feeling good, which is, or like when you weigh, weigh yourself, there's always like a couple of kilos difference either side, uh, especially if you're like me and might just indulge one day and maybe not so much the other day. I'm like, oh, I try not to stress too much about it. Or but, if you're um, like me and you like, weigh in at 115 kilos every day, you know that there's going to be variance just based on size of frame. Oh, exactly. exactly. So there's just variance in day to day. And um, so you kind of find that, in performance, there is variance as well. Um, and, but basically, um, yeah, if you're cruising, I personally find like the training stress is a lot more tolerant or tolerable, I should say. So if you do most of your sets um, or competition sets, of course we do interval training and, and different other things, it's a cruising pace. And then you can sprint at the end. You've kind of got two mindsets and it's sort of like, you know, working your technique and being in the moment. Um, and then you've got this kind of, sprinting being in the moment. Whereas I feel like if you push um, a bit too hard and now everyone is different, but a lot of times people sort of, it starts to make that psychological thing or training regularly at that RPM, you know, is quite hard. So I got 70 reps um, uh, a couple of weeks ago and I personally don't like doing seven RPM for long cycle. Mm. I did six RPM and then I just sprinted or increased my pace for an all out sprint in the last minute. And so do you ever, do you ever do, do you ever do variable pace training where you go seven, one minute, six, the next minute, seven, one minute, six, the next minute, or things like, you know, the, the up, down, the up, down variability on, on pacing to, to work on that tactical pacing component. Have you ever tried that? Yeah. So I I love that stuff. Um, So I sort of also like, what, uh, what you've probably also picking up, I was look at, you know, different sports science things and I try to apply that to GS. And so, you know, in a lot of interval training, you'll have a passive recovery or an active recovery. And sort of what you're Mm -hmm. describing there is almost like you've got a, um, uh, you've got your work component and then you've got your active recovery. So if you're doing 12 RPM jerk and then you do six RPM jerk, you know, you're getting, you're allowing yourself to recover provided you have a good rack position. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't have a good rack position, you might actually be training your, um, you know, a different quality that um, is maybe quite useful um, getting you used to different things. And I think um, movement variability and being able to perform things in a variety of different ways is really important. And also giving yourself different contexts and constraints is also really important because things often don't work out. So I like to compete um, as much as possible because you always learn something and there's always just some sort of factor that's a bit weird um, and you sort of learn just something about it. Maybe it's someone watching how other people go about competition or, you know, um, traveling or different kettlebells, just learning to adapt to them 
all that sort of stuff. But um, the, the other thing that I quite like is say, um, with say this active recovery kind of model is um, changing the exercise. Um, and it would of course depend on your phase of training. So we generally move more general to specific in, um, in that sort of periodization. And it also depends on when your competitions are and which competition you want to peak for and things like that. But you might say do snatches and then go to swings for a minute. And you might do that if you're looking to emphasize the grip or you might do a swing and snatch um, and a snatch in combination. And you're just train changing the stimulus um, but maybe you're looking to get a certain amount of time. Um, and just by manipulating those variables, um, you'll have a sort of different training outcome. But basically, if you were to do 16 RPM snatch, and then you go 16 RPM oh, clean, you've sort of given yourself an active recovery. Um, and it, it's also good to to use that stuff to break up the monotony of training for some people. Yeah. Um, but that also might allow you to get eight minutes on one side as opposed to if you just did snatch, you might get, um, you know, four minutes or something. So just, uh, it's just a thing you can throw into the mix to just um, play around with different variables. And hopefully I should say with, well, what's fantastic about kettlebell sport is you can really see where the programming comes out. Again, you have your day-to-day -day variability and um, different things can get in the way of your performance, but really, You've, you've got your test, which is your competition, and you can do other tests, but then you sort of retest 12 weeks later. And provided you are consistent, again, consistency is king, provided you're consistent, you can assess that programming, be like, that worked for me, that didn't work for me, and then you can sort of refine it. Um, and you know, maybe that's, you need to train more, or maybe um, you need to work on your technique or your flexibility or you, um, your, numbers in snatch are really low when you uh, do biathlon compared to your snatch only numbers. So maybe there's a strategy um, which might be being more aerobically fit or just doing jerks before your snatch sets. You know, you might try out something to see if that improves your performance. And then as a coach, you can go, okay, they followed what I said and we build up a nice picture. So you're sort of like your own experiment in a way yeah um, you're collecting data points and the more data points you get over time you know again as you said with consistency being the key because uh, otherwise you don't know if you don't know if the variable was consistency or not so um so staying consistent is huge because then you can just you can you can test different variables uh over time and you just can get sharper and sharper i think with uh with what you're with what you're working on that's i love that and I think also a really important thing with training is a lot of people beat themselves up if they don't do what's on the paper, but they often don't appreciate little variables have huge uh, impacts on um, their performance. So like maybe you had a, a harder session a couple of days ago, or, you know, we, we talk about day-to-day -day stress, but there's also lots of other things. It might be time of day. Um, if you're changing things around um, what you've eaten, um, different other stress stresses or order of exercise or if you don't pay attention to your rests between sets um, you know if if you rest 15 minutes versus five minutes that might have a huge impact on your performance but oh, you might not be aware of that um, I'm sure at the time you're aware of it but like you, you when you put it down on paper you might not be like what oh, I'm, you know my performance has actually decreased you know you might get bummed out about it but really you've made that session a lot harder just by manipulating those little variables um, 
yeah, so I think that's an important consideration for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. I mean, and then you start, I mean, you touched on it a little bit before, you know, you're talking about the different energy systems, you know, you have your, your three basic energy systems, aerobic, anaerobic, and then ATPCP, right? And depending on which of those you're tapping into at what percentage for the total time, you know, that you're exercising, it's going to really affect uh, how you recover, how much lactate you produce, how glycolytic you are, uh, you know, and, and based on that, that's going to affect your nutrition pretty significantly as well. So I think one of the big areas that a lot of that a lot of athletes miss especially right now in the US is uh, carbohydrates and understanding how carbohydrate fueling correlates to the type and intensity of the training that you're doing because we've been conditioned at least in the US I don't know how consistent the messaging has been in, in uh, Australia but uh, that that carbs are the enemy right and that carbs make you fat and that carbs make you store fat and you shouldn't eat them at certain times and you know et cetera, et cetera. and there's so there's so much misunderstanding and misinformation about carbohydrates um, how do you how do you work on you know, periodization of carbohydrates and uh, periodization of nutrition, I guess, in general, but, and, and how that correlates to uh, the energy systems that you're designing for and that you're working with. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I, I should say you probably couldn't see me nodding then when you're saying all of that. Um, I don't think we get it quite as much, uh, that much of a strong messaging here, but it's definitely um, a big factor. Um, so um, again, fortunately at uni, I've been exposed to all, um, probably with that, um, a big person that's responsible for a lot of that messaging is uh, a guy by the name of Tim Noakes, who was originally a big carbohydrate advocate. And then, um, so we've got one of his students, um, uh, John Hawley, who's a professor at our university. Um, and he's kind of, uh, they, I guess they kind of battle a bit in, in that respect. Um, but Basically, um, we've, they've, uh, a few people at uni have run a lot of experiments where they will look at fat adaption and um, also carbohydrate loading versus um, di well, different substrate or different energy fuel availability and its effect on performance. Um, so, yeah, I think if you want to go um, uh, just carbohydrate or low carbohydrate, like a keto diet or a a low carbohydrate diet. Basically, we need carbohydrates to fuel that anaerobic energy system. So if you don't have carbohydrates to fuel that system, um, you will eventually not use it and your body will reverse some of those adaptations. So various enzymes that you use to power or give you that extra gear will get removed. So, I mean, you still have some carbohydrates, but um, yeah, so if you, for long term on a high fat diet, you will probably not have that extra anaerobic gear, which might make your training sessions feel a bit nicer potentially. Um, but you won't have uh, probably as much energy turnover, which is really what sport's about to, to get the maximum output. And you might feel like you don't have that extra gear. When you only have fat available, you have to use your aerobic system, which drives greater adaptations within that system. So there is potentially a case to do that at certain times. So this is where, like, like you mentioned, carbohydrate periodization or, um, you know, um, some classic stuff that bodybuilders use, like um, high carbohydrates part of the week, low carbohydrates other part of the week. Or, yeah, carb cycling. You know, um, 
Yeah, exactly. Um, that was the word I was looking for. But um, also you can do some of your training in a low glycogen state or a um, refueled state. So typically, um, so I've been lucky enough to test quite a few people, um, uh, particularly mainly snatch um, on with the metabolic carts and basically everyone uses carbohydrates. So the higher intensity your exercise, the more you use carbohydrates because they're just sort of a faster energy um, fuel. Um, so I sometimes use the analogy of like creatine um, is kind of like your rocket fuel, um, carbohydrates are like your petrol and then um, fats kind of like your uh, diesel or something like that. I'm not sure if you I, use I those use, terms. Actually I, use, I use it's petroleum. I actually, I actually use a very similar, but I, I say, imagine that you're a, you're a hybrid car that has electric gas and then you put a NOS booster on it. You know, electric is, yeah. electric is your aerobic system because it produces the least amount of byproduct. And then, and then gas is your anaerobic system because it starts producing exhaust. And then the ATP CP is the NOS because it gives you that, that, that rocket boost, but it, it lasts a very little period of time. It takes a long time to replenish and it produces a lot of byproduct. <laughs> like that's, that's, that, that's great. Right. That's an almost uh, identical analogy that, that I use with my athletes. So. That's much more up to date though. I think that's, I'll, I'll definitely steal that if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, so, so um, I should say, and we want our kettlebell training to be quality, right? So we typically, I, I think um, you don't really want to use that um, unless it's a lighter session and you're going for, you know, I'd say, particularly like a lighter bell that you're doing higher reps um, and you're trying to make that harder. So for example, if you had say, you know, your back's not feeling great. Um, maybe you want to do snatch with gloves or um, at a really light weight and you do a higher RPM and just to make it harder, you've changed um, your internal environment by not consuming carbohydrates or something like that. Or um, maybe you've, depleted your carbohydrates with previous training and you haven't refueled. So all these different factors will affect things. So basically if you train in that lower carbohydrate state, you will get um, a stronger like uh, molecular signaling for mitochondrial biogenesis or just kind of basically you have a central adaptation with, uh, which would be like say your heart or your brain, things like that. And then you've got stuff that happens in the muscle. But the problem with that is you can probably train harder when you have carbohydrates, which you probably sort of, you'll get the same sort of signaling and, and stuff like that. Um, or basically really when you look at it on that sort of larger scale stuff, like we, we said before, um, you'll have better performance. So I would suggest practically um, or for myself, sometimes um, when I run, I would either run at the end of my session or on a, a day where I haven't, eating much carbohydrates or run in the morning because I'm trying to make my running as hard as possible because I want my heart and um, body to adapt with as little dosage of training as possible because I'm an absolutely rubbish runner now because I've got all my injuries. <laughs> so I don't even run, I shuffle basically. So if, if, I, if I train or run at the end of my session, if you have muscle damage, that reduces your running economy. If I've depleted my carbohydrate stores to some extent, that will... Um, help with, uh, you know, um, maybe help with some adaptations and, and things like that. Whereas if I want a quality GS session, especially if you're not doing like most, like if you're not doing like six GS sessions, sessions a week, I, I think you just really want them to be quality. Um, six or more, I'd say. 
So if you do three or four sessions, you really want them to be high quality. So you want to be fueled and ready to go because you don't want to sort of feel like you get to a point where you just can't push. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, and you don't want your technique to sort of fall down because you want to reinforce um, good technique within the context of where you are in that set, I guess. Absolutely. Hopefully Absolutely. that answers the question. Not. Uh, well, it's always a it's always a framework, right? That's the that's the thing that makes it fun and makes it hard as well, is because it's there's the the answer is almost always well it depends because we're you know we're just talking about how to optimize <coughs> carbohydrates as it relates to your training, but what if you're trying to change body composition because you need to get down to a lower weight class or because that's your primary goal and GS is just a mechanism for you to reduce your body composition? Well, then how do you train in a in a in a calorie depleted state, right? You know, if you're on a a nine a nine hundred kilo calorie deficit, you know, uh, because you're, you're, you're trying to aggressively lose weight for a period of six weeks. Uh, how is that going to affect, right? There, there's so many, there's so many factors to, to then tie into that. How do you time your carbohydrates, uh, et cetera. <clears throat> Let's. Yeah. And I, I think when, when it comes back to that, um, period, periodization that we were talking about before, we want to implement or try to, to find the minimum effective dose. So if you've got 12 weeks, I mean, hopefully you've got a couple, uh, a bit longer than six weeks um, to try and dial in um, all that sort of stuff. But I would say um, encouraging people to walk more, increase their incidental activity um, is, is a really big one. So most people have pedometers on their phone and things like that. Um, so if you can, if someone has a relatively sedentary job and they train hard, maybe they're only getting a few thousand steps a day, but by upping that to 10,000 a day, it provided they have time, or I think during, um, you know, where we're kind of locked down uh, in Melbourne, Australia, whereas the rest of Australia is kind of not, uh, and they're free to pretty much do whatever they want. Um, so I, I would say my, um, my incidental activity has gone uh, it's so low right now compared to what it has been in the past, because I would typically working in the gym, walk around 20,000 steps, lift weights, just, you know, like picking up kettlebells all day or just like loading bars and things like that. Whereas these days I'm just at home and I'll sort of train myself, but I've trained people online um, and do things like that. So I, my energy expenditure is gone down quite a bit. So I think you've got to find what works and is most sustainable for someone. And again, aim for that minimum effective dose. And then over time it will change, which is a bit sad because you sort of think you've nailed it once. And this also goes, also goes for kettlebell training. You know, maybe you do three sessions a week um, and you do six minutes to 10 minutes of volume each session. And then that produces great results, but then you stop getting great results. So you really need to up it. But I think um, learning about your body and, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. Like, um, lose, so I, I guess also you've got your acute and chronic weight loss, which, um, I constantly hear about, um, in America, people who have a wrestling background do the most ridiculous acute weight loss. Um, <laughs> I actually did my, I actually did my thesis on, uh, for, for my undergrad on, on male, male patterned eating disorder behavior, um, and, and the etiology of that, of that uh, of that disease. And that's one of the, one of the populations that was most evident in was, uh, wrestlers and former wrestlers because, because of that. So, uh, it's, yeah, it, they do some crazy, uh, weight manipulation techniques. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's really interesting. I, I know for myself, um, so, uh, through this time, I've sort of gone from being about 83 ish kilos to like, I'm around 86, 
Um, and typically in Australia, we'd compete under 85 um, or I would compete under 85, but I've sort of haven't bothered to cut any weight this year. But even for myself, who I feel like I have a relatively healthy relationship with food, um, I should say uh, my wife is a sort of a clinical nutritionist and things like that. So I usually only give broad stroke advice when it comes to nutrition as it pertains to performance, kind of like eat carbohydrates, eat protein, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Whereas I'm, um, she, she gives more nuanced advice. But um, yeah, I, I know for myself, as uh, like I said, I, I have a probably a healthy relationship with food, I'd say. Um, just cutting weight, it, you know, if, I, if I'm trying to lose a little bit of weight, um, it does do your head in a bit, but I would say for performance, um, I, th I think you, you need to be strategic in what you're aiming for. If you're aiming for a rank, I feel like um, at least in Australia, you typically will aim to beat yourself and you'll aim to get a certain rank. And if you come in at a lighter weight class, that, that will typically be advantageous. But if, um, if you lose too diminishing, much weight, it's, it's going to affect Diminishing your... returns, like you said before, right? There's a point of diminishing returns where if you're, if you're not within, you know, five, five-ish kilos, depending on, I guess, depending on how high in the weight, you know, in the weight categories you are. But like, if you're not, if you're not walking around within, you know, a handful of kilos of, of where you need to be, your the cut is probably going to diminish your uh, performance on that day, especially now where most things are online and you have to weigh in the day of the competition and you don't even have a day to replenish fluids or, you know, you can't do a water manipulation. It, it, it just has to be a legitimate, you know, uh, that's, yeah. your, that's your weight, you know, you, in some of these, you ha actually have to weigh in, in the video before you start lifting. So it's like literally your weight at the time that you, that you lifted. Yeah, absolutely. And you're in your clothes and things like that as well. I, I know, um, when I went to Latvia um, for the IUKL World Championships a couple of years ago, um, we, we left Australia and I was around 83, 80, I think I was 84 kilos. So I'm like pretty comfortable with my weight. Typically, um, I sort of, you know, try to eat predominantly whole food, um, spread time my protein evenly throughout the day. And um, depending on if, if, you know, carbohydrate timing can be a thing, but I really don't stress too much about it. I just try to eat lots of vegetables and fruit and some good protein sources, etc. Um, but yeah, so I left Australia about 84 kilos and we were there about a week beforehand. I didn't have a scale. Um, I think we, we went and weighed myself at some different scales a couple of times, but then I went in for the weigh-in and I weighed 80 kilos because I was paranoid about what I was eating and my performance really suffered. Uh, my long cycle was okay, but my biathlon was um, pretty rubbish. So it, it does really have um, quite an impact on, on your performance. Um, I should say the long cycle was the following day. So I actually wonder even um, when I weighed in, I you know got to eat lots of food and the following day I still kept eating. And then the, so we had the biathlon and the long cycle. And even with the fatigue of the um, biathlon, my long cycle wasn't too far off what I was hoping to do. Because you were able to replenish some of the some of those calories that you needed. But also, it's worth noting that they use a Ural bell. So when you come to, um, let's say, um, technical or tactical, sometimes using the bells that uh, uh, you know that that competition uses. So that's another important factor that I see some people get really upset that they didn't, particularly their snatch goes down the gurgler, mm. or um, 
I'm not sure if that's a you use that uh, <laughs> term there. A, but that's it's, not it's, a, I'm I'm familiar with it because of playing rugby, and I've met enough Aussies that that I know what that means. <laughs> it's not a term that I've heard in a long time. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so you, you get a, a marked reduction in your performance, but um, it could just be the hand, the window is a bit different. Maybe it's like a slightly thicker or thinner bell. You can't maneuver your hand around. So this is where um, something like movement variability or being able to perform um, the snatch and adapt to your equipment makes a big difference. So um, typically now in Australia, we use kettlebell kings, but in the past we'd predominantly use iron edge kettlebells. Um, so we oh, have a good kettlebell set of kings. I also, I also use kettlebell kings as well. I just got a brand new one today. So, oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I actually think I did as well. Um, so it was pretty cool. Actually, um, we got prizes for the, the nationals in Australia and they were kind enough to give out a, a bell. Um, so I think I might've got a kettlebell. Um, so, um, that's very exciting. Um, nice. first time I've won anything really. So that's, that's great. But, um, you know, obviously, like the first time I used those bells was at um, the Nationals in Albury, um, in Australia, sorry. Um, and yeah, my snatch went down, although I did, the bells did feel quite nice, I should say. Um, but yeah, some bells are a bit narrower and like, sorry, last year in Ireland, they had a, almost like a thinner handle mm -hmm. um, and a bigger window. And a lot of people really struggled with that. Um, but I was lucky enough that I've got a few, we've got like three brands of kettlebells at the gym. And one of the brands um, that I sometimes train with has a larger um, window and a narrower handle. And um, some of the women that train in the gym really like those bells. Um, and, but it, it really felt like, like that kettlebell. So I felt like I had a strategic advantage because I'd trained with that kettlebell. Um, so it, yeah, wherever possible, if you can have the, the equipment that is used and also sometimes using different kettlebells might actually be like a novel stimulus to your body to drive some sort of adaptation because it's a slightly different grip or, you know, you have to think about things in a slightly different way. Slightly different ballistics or even just the, the placebo effect of, you know, on the day of training to know that you've picked up a bell like that before, uh, you know, makes, makes a, does make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like you said there also, the center of mass can be a little bit different. If it's a bit more displaced, um, then that makes a big difference. Um, whereas when it's closer um, to, to the handle, it, it will feel different. And that's kind of what's nice about the Kettlebell Kings ones. Is it is definitely closer and the Ural Bells are, well, are, are like that as well. Whereas I think now the Iron Edge kind of do that, but previously they'll just be kind of um, evenly distributed so that the center of mass would be a bit further away. So it would feel different. Um, so these are all little factors that, that um, affect your performance. And some people can get really upset, but there might be a reason that they haven't been able to identify or articulate that's really hurt their performance uh, as opposed to their preparation. So I think there's some, there's some factors there. And also if you can just sort of uh, be forgiving on yourself. I think that's important with kettlebell sport because it can be brutal. And if <laughs> you don't, you don't get your rank one or whatever rank, you know, it's not the end of the world, just sort of have to be consistent. And once you've been consistent long enough, especially once you can establish a good rack position, I think that you, you, your numbers will eventually um, come good. I think. Absolutely.
Well, James, thank you so much. I, I actually have to let you go because I've got to go coach my team here at the, at the bottom of the hour. Awesome. We've got, I've got 20, 20 uh, intervals, uh, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off of, uh, of long cycle where we're going to be pushing lactate thresholds. So <laughs> I, don't think the team, I don't think the team quite knows what they, what they have in store because we've never done these short sprints before, but uh, that's the intention behind tonight's training. So we're going we're gonna to get awesome. to that here at the bottom of the hour. So. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Um, hopefully that was coherent. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I thought it was much great. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for that, mate. Really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it, James. And I, I love, I love all the work that you're doing. How do people follow you? Um, you're, you're at, uh, you're at GS science on Instagram, right? Yeah. And on Facebook, I actually kind of uh, post different things, um, more of like my blog posts, I guess on, um, the Facebook one and I also have a website gsscience.com I think um, I probably should know but um, yeah so they're probably the main places that you can sort of um, see what I'm doing I guess and, and if I may I think I think once you finish your doctorate you need to change your Instagram handle to uh, Dr. Kettlebell or Dr. Swing <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah mate. We'll, we'll, we'll see how we go maybe I'll start another one but um, <laughs> anyway thanks thanks so much for that mate I'll um, I'll talk to you soon I appreciate it. Thank you so much, James. Have a good Bye. night. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Platform Podcast. I'm Jordan Kundi Wright. If you have a question, please email me at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub, on Twitter at TCKBClub, online at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub.com, and please help us grow our reach and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.